and welcome back to Box Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co's Monica and Wayne. How's it going, guys? Mav. Hi, Mav. It's going good. Yeah. Oh, we, I am, I am so tired. I just got off work. <laughs> it's, it's hot here you're, and it's you're fall. Teaching like, you're teaching like 47 universities. I am teaching at, somehow, I am now teaching at three, four different classes at three different schools. I work for every university in Western Pennsylvania now. <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> it's exhausting. And I mean, there was, I've not yet shown up at the wrong place yet. That's I good. came, I came real close yesterday. Like I, I, I missed a turn just like, I, I mean, I don't know how much our listeners know or care about Pittsburgh geography, but like literally driving away from my house, I went two blocks towards, um, university of Pittsburgh and then real uh, away, which is where the, where I need to fork in the road. I drove two blocks down the wrong fork and I'm like, I am supposed to go to the other school today. So <laughs> I had to actually turn around. And, um, so it would be, I've not like actually made it all the way my, to my office or anything like that, but it is, it is confusing and exhausting and tiring. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's better than, I mean, like, again, at the end of the day, my, my job's to, to read books and, and write right. and like, yeah, it would be worse. I, yeah. Like whatever other people have to do for a living, it's not, it's not actually bad. And it's just, it's confusing. It'd be nice if I had just like one steady university. So, you yeah. know, if anybody's offering a tenure track job, I'm available. <laughs> Monica, <laughs> <No>. how are you? <laughs> Haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. No, I'm, I'm good. I, I'm still following the news very closely, uh, for listeners who, uh, heard our, uh, strike podcast. We still, don't have word yet, but ballots are out. People are voting. We'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. I have a ton of people, a ton of friends here in the Pittsburgh area who who work in that industry. Who are I'm seeing tons of posts on that stuff. So, and I, I mean, we we have so at time of recording that episode that you guys did. Wayne and I weren't on that show, but that episode you guys did just dropped a couple of days ago for us. But it was like two weeks ago for the listener. So who knows where things are now? But yeah, the episode's really good. So you should have to, so people should go back and listen to it so that they understand exactly where the you know what the situation is and like it, it, you guys did a great job so it was it was really interesting for me so um and i hope it hope it's turning out better by now i mean it's been yeah. two weeks <laughs> it's, well, it's, we'll see we'll it's see it's weird you know talking you know podcast time yeah. travel but that's not what we're talking about this week no <laughs> uh wayne your topic this week what are we doing yeah. this week okay so so a little background if you read the blog i'm basically just kind of repeat what i said on that because it's the best way of saying it uh, a few weeks ago i was given an advanced reading copy of a book review for the post gazette from our friend and at least he's on the show at least once tony norman um it's a book called all the marvels uh wherein well he said you know he, i was the only one of the only people he knew who could do justice to, to reading this might have some sense of perspective so the the premise is i I worked at a comic shop for you know, 20 some years. And one of the questions I got most often when people came in, new readers with Marvel Comics and DC, but specifically Marvel, it seemed to us, where do I start? There's so much. I, I, I have no idea where to start reading comics. What, what do you recommend? And, and in my basic answer most of the time was just, you know, pick a character you like, something that looks interesting and jump in. You're never going to know all of it. Um, you're, you know, you're going to build this universe in your brain as you read it. You're, there are going to be references you don't get. Part of the joy of this is finding out those references and, and building that world. So just start anywhere. Cause I mean, nobody's crazy enough to have read every Marvel comic. Um, <laughs> so with that, I'm going to introduce someone who's crazy enough to have read every Marvel comic. Uh, the author of 
the book. Douglas Wolk is with us. It's a book called All the Marvels. Welcome, Douglas. Welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. on. Yeah, the, the, and it was completely random. It just unlike a lot of our guests, none of us know Douglas. I, I sent an email out of the blue, and he responded almost immediately and has been incredibly gracious about coming on to, to talk about every Marvel comic since 1961. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, so I, and I've told different people, I was born like maybe six weeks before Fantastic Four number one was on the rack. So I was kind of born with the Marvel Universe, which oh. I, I, I think was part of my destiny to, to be involved <laughs> in comics. Uh, I, but, uh, and that was your starting point. I mean, there were Marvel Comics, Timely Comics, Atlas Comics before 1961, but that was your starting point. I'm just curious, talk to me about your process and what made you want to do this. You talk about this in the book, but for our, our listeners. Yeah, I mean... I uh, I got started on the project uh, really because uh, it was my son's idea. Uh, my son had always read comics with me since he was very, very small, but not superhero comics. He was like, oh, you know, that's that's what my dad likes. And then uh, at one point, about six years ago, we were I, I got asked to teach a class here in Portland uh, for the thing called a thing called Pugs, Portland Underground Grad School, which is kind of unofficial grad school type classes that are just for anyone who wants to register in the community. And so I put together some PowerPoints for it about the history of American superhero comics. That was the topic of the class that I was asked to teach. And my son asked if he could have a look at the PowerPoints I'd put together. And I showed them to him. He was like, oh, this is a complicated system. Oh, I like complicated systems. And then he announced, hey, dad, I'd like to read all the Marvel superhero comics in continuity order, not the order that uh, they were published, the order the events <laughs> happened to the characters. Characters. I was like, great, year 10. Uh, this is <laughs> this is going to last a week. Like, you're, <laughs> you know, it's fine. We'll have a week. We'll have fun together for a week. And a few months later, he read everything up through 1968. He was like, you know, Dad, I think I'm more interested in the modern crossover era. It's like, Mazel tov, kid. Uh, so, you know, and we, so we, we picked some more stuff to read. We kept reading. Um, and at some point, I was like, I wonder what would happen if I actually did read all of this. You know, I like doing kind of completist projects. My wife and I uh, had a joke for a while that we, we wanted to have, you know, a little artistic movement called the new compulsives uh, <laughs> where we, so, so for example, she did this amazing project where she took a photo within a block of every subway station in New York city. Wow. Uh, and a beautiful, beautiful series. And there is something to be said about doing something all the way. Now, this is not the way that these comics were ever meant to be read ever. No, no. <laughs> even the people who are creating them have not done this. There yeah, are, right. I, there are, I think uh, you know, three or four other people who've probably read them all. Um, I will preserve their names for the sake of protecting the innocent or guilty or whatever you want to call them. Being being born when I was and and learning to read very early from comics, I have read and working in a comic shop for 20 plus years, I've read a lot of comics. I've read a lot of Marvel comics and it's stuck in my neurons in ways that is embarrassing. I have not read all of them and there there are giant gaps. There's a big period in the early 90s that I just kind of ignored Marvel and even yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I have very few regrets about that. And even you know, after you know, working in a comic shop where I had access to a lot of that stuff, still haven't read a lot of it. I don't know that I've ever read an issue of Dark Hawk. Oh wow! Yeah. I'm a fortunate, fortunate man. I, I was in the store when I, when that when that was coming out. I mean, yeah. 
So a little background for me when or actually for the way the show works, we've, we've been talking a lot about behind the scenes stuff lately, you guys. Um, but um, when when Wayne pitched you as a guest, like I, so Wayne was reviewing this book for your book for the for our, our paper mm-hmm. and um, he pitched you as a guest. And I mean, as someone myself, I like I'm finishing my doctorate, my like getting a PhD, my dissertation involved me reading far more um, golden, silver and bronze age comics than any human being should ever be forced to do. That was like something wow. that I had to do. And um, when Wayne pitched, he's like, so, you know, there's this book by this guy who's read every Marvel comic ever. Like, um, you know, do you guys think we should try to have him on? And I was like, yes, because really, I just want to ask why in God's name would you do that to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, I mean, like, no one, no one's, I mean, I, okay, yes, you wrote a book, but no one forced you. I mean, you mentioned your son. He wasn't like being held at gunpoint or anything. There was not, was not like a terrorist action that forced you. Like, I've read Darkhawk because at the time, I, 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 when Darkhawk came out, I was probably 17 years old working in a comic book store and 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 i knew it was bad then like <laughs> i was probably prime audience and yeah. i was like this is not uh, you know apologies to any of our listeners who are um Giant, yeah, we're gonna be getting, we're gonna be getting I mean, letters yeah because you know the one of you <laughs> sure okay fine enjoy dark Hawk. but you chose to do this on purpose <laughs> okay so, so i want to put a pin <laughs> in that for just a second and ask what was your dis on that you were reading all those comics for oh god um i am so i <laughs> this was this seemed like such a better i'm not quite done yet i'm the, as listeners know because I, I i complain every once in a while i am perpetually like 15 to 20 pages from done um i've written 400 pages so far i'm it, this is ridiculously long um i had this theory that um people always talk about the monomyth the way the way superheroes follow right. a monomyth and in fact this and you touch on this a little bit from what i've read read in the book with your your theory of perpetual you know you're doing a perpetual publication there is no start point end point and so I argued that the Campbellian monomyth does not really apply to superheroes. It pretends it does, but I argued that the nature of superheroes is you start, you know, you have act one of the monomyth. Monomyth is the three act structure. Act one happens in the origin story. And then act two perpetually repeats forever. And the way we get away with this is we do this through um, through superheroes become this psychosexual narrative. So I call it, so it's sex and the superhero are intertwined and superheroes are always about gender roles. And so in order to do that, I had to map um, the changes in the monomyth of monomythic structure in superheroes from golden age to silver age to bronze age to modern age over what I probably should have done. If I, if I had this to do over again, I would have thought to just do it in silver age because it would have been way easier. But like when I was like proposing the dissertation, they're like, well, that doesn't seem long enough. And <laughs> so I was like, they don't, don't, they don't. Oh, no. Yeah. So I'll do all of oh. them. And, and now, um, now I've read a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess I, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pause for a second. Just I, Douglas, we didn't, I gave you a little bit of background in my, my email to you, but I, maybe you should have a better idea of who you're talking to as well. Maybe we should have done this ahead of time. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. But yeah. You know, you just, Mav just said that I, I have a, a master's in clinical psychology that I haven't used in years. I kind of fell into teaching comics and, and I'm the free, I'm the, yeah, I'm the freelance academic among us. 
Um, so it's Monica for now. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm also a kind of a freelance academic. I teach comics history right now at Portland State. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I taught comics history at uh, University of Chatham here in Pittsburgh, and I've done a class in the graphic novel at uh, University of Pittsburgh. We, for a period of time, we had a, a comics museum here in Pittsburgh called the Tunesium. It still technically exists as a concept. I was on the board. I did tons of presentations there. And, and, I've, and I've done presentations at like four or five other universities. Uh, yeah, I just kind of fell into it backwards. I love doing the teaching part of it. And, and I've done presentations at the pop culture conventions and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But I yeah. said mine. And, and, Monica, you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm a, um, a fashion historian, but my area of expertise is actually uh, fashion within superhero comics and their film and television adaptations. So I look at uh, basically what we can learn about uh, society, societal value systems, reader, reader and artist understanding of uh, fashion and pop culture, uh, like through the lens of as as being illustrated in comics or being adapted from comics to the screen. Uh, so nice. I've also read a lot. Uh, so my <laughs> master's thesis was on Claremont's X-Men run and the fashion uh-huh. in Excellent. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've also done a pretty large project on like every appearance of Janet Van Dyne from like, her first <laughs> appearance to like uh, the late 90s. So, I, so I've also read yeah. a lot of Avengers comics in there too. <laughs> And I just like grew up with like, just like bins and bins and bins. Like my, my ex stepdad worked in a pawn shop. And so I would like sit around after school and just read nice comics. I've read most of what I've read is, is bronze age. Like, yeah. As a kid, uh, the joke is my my parents were uh, were Power Man and Iron Fist. (laughs) (laughs) Monica, I actually want to address the fashion thing, uh, because one thing that I got increasingly fascinated by as I was working on the book was this kind of other strain of Marvel Comics history of the comics about teenage girls and young professional women that Mm -hmm. were a giant chunk of their publishing in the 50s and the late 40s and 50s and especially in the early 60s and there's this whole riff in the book about how I, my, my conceptual starting point for the book ended up not being Fantastic Four number one but Linda Carter student nurse number mm-hmm. one <laughs> and I love that I love that chapter in your book because you, you, went, you, went, you went through all this stuff about Marvel history and then you backtracked with this other stuff and I thought that was really incredibly well done mm-hmm. but they were, you know they were all of these comics about professional women and teenage girls and for a while like they are very very fashion focused to the point where readers are credited on pretty much every other page with mm-hmm. designing the outfits that every character is wearing Patsy Walker Hellcat and Millie the Model. Um, yeah. This was the ongoing gimmick, and for a while in DC Comics and Supergirl. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. you know, this you a also lot see of this famous fashion designers uh, later on when they're interviewed. Like I've seen interviews with um, Betsy Johnson and Willie Smith being like, uh, "Oh, I grew up making uh, Katie Keene designs." She she was my favorite. I submitted every week, et cetera, et cetera. And then they end up being famous fashion designers, which I just think is so didn't, cute. Didn't Willie Smith end up doing uh, Mary Jane Mary Watson's Jane's, wedding dress? Yes, Mary Jane Watson's wedding dress in I think Amazing Spider Man annual. Oh God, it's it's like twenty one. Twenty one. I was going to say twenty or twenty one. Who am I talking to? 
yes yeah. it's like okay we are the nerdiest bunch ever and i'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> just like wondering like so i mean like i'm wondering that now like you know just the you know because i like we we were we were gonna pause just to introduce ourselves um to douglas but like just contextually i'll probably leave a lot of what we just said oh, in yeah. so you know <laughs> show number 182 for the listener you know yeah, introduction to our <laughs> which to, to people on the show um yeah but so just to get back to it i, I mean as Wayne said, you know, the, just the idea of what you did, the project for this book was just like the absolute nerdiest thing. Uh, and like when Wayne pitched it, me and Monica are both like, you know, we have five posts on the show and none of us show up for every episode. But like we knew, oh, yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm here for this. This is this is this is right. like, and it's like, yeah, no, there's of course I will come for come for this. So I, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, I mean, you talked about uh, you talked about, you know, the old Linda Carter book and then you talk about. Uh, I mean, you you make a joke early on in the book about um, Spider Man being the Kevin Bacon of the of the Marvel Universe, with the exception <laughs> of the fact that he's never met Millie Mil, uh, Millie the model, but it's okay because his wife has, you know. <laughs> which, which, like, yes, that's true. And um, and I didn't know never. I mean, like you've you've read them all. I, I'm amazed that that never that there's never a Spider Man Millie the model crossover. I mean, she's she's a step away from Hellcat. I mean, it's fine, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazingly enough, you know, uh, they're both around. In at the the wedding of Reed, Reed, Reed and Sue, yep, but they don't actually encounter each other. So yeah, okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So I, I, you know, one of the things I, I liked about the way you laid the book out is um, you didn't focus on the minutiae of continuity. Which you know, so many people do, and which you, Wayne you, and I hate as um, yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, continuity is, as you point out, incredibly flexible. You know, we, we all have our own head canon depending on when you come into it and what counts and what doesn't, and any of it is subject to change based on this week's issue. But I, I liked how you, 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 the chapter is set up like you picked a chapter, you did a chapter on Spider Man and the X Men, and then you talked about significant moments in in their history. You talked about you know, specific big issues, uh, the, the key issues, as the collectors say. But you right. did it in such a way that you talked more about the larger thematic aspects of the characters than yeah. this happened and then this happened, yeah. and the fact that you didn't do that necessarily in chronological continuity because of continuity issues. I, I, I guess talk to me about your process on that, just how, how you came about some of those themes as you were, as you were reading this massive stack of comics. Well, um, I didn't read the comics in chronological right. order. I didn't read them in any order. I just grazed. I just, you know, yeah. whether I felt like reading on any given day and mm -hmm. that's how they were kind of always meant to be read. Yeah. Now, unlike a couple of you, I love continuity stuff. I love seeing how bits and pieces of the story all fit together with each other, mm -hmm. uh, especially when that's intentional. And also, especially when that's completely unintentional, when yeah, I, it I, just I, I accidentally like, falls together. Yeah, I like it when it's well done. I mean, you don't don't get me wrong. I, I'm not just poo pooing all continuity. It just once Avengers again, forever is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Avengers <laughs> forever. I thought I really loved because mm -hmm. I knew what all the footnotes were before I read them. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so. Yes, I, I have that sort of thing as well. But I also, mm -hmm. my experience with the fanboys who just lose their mind if something contradicts something they hold absolutely dear. Well, actually, because of, uh, yeah, I don't care. Well, actually, I'm, well, actually, I am actually kind of curious where you fall on this, Douglas. Because, um, yeah. so for me, it's always been, and this is, this is a, this is a, uh, I, I care about continuity to the extent that I care about continuity, which is if the story entertains me, 
good. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll deal with breakages. Um, even in a single author book, you know, there's errors in there's errors in single novels that happen all the time. You know, uh, sure. and, and I'm fine with that. I um I have always found it interesting. I like I like when things fit together because I enjoy the puzzle. But the puzzle, if there's no puzzle and if the puzzle doesn't work, I'm not going to waste time on trying to make it work. And just again, from what I've read of the book so far, you you sort of very early on accept that that has to be the case, right? Like, yeah, you know, it really does. I mean, your first your first chapter of actual reviews. I mean, you've got like three chapters of setup, but then the first chapter of actual reviews is Fantastic Four, and you know Franklin is between four and eight years old for forty years, and you just have to deal with that, right? Like, like, <laughs> there's no there's no there's no answer to the question, right? I mean, there is, but <laughs> oh, really, okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my, my absolute favorite uh, fan theory, and this is this is from uh, a site called Zack Site that is put together by like the world's biggest Jack Kirby fan. Mm-hmm. But what he, his his headcanon, which bless him, is that Franklin, as we know, is an incredibly powerful mutant. Sure. And he knows it's going to be a really big problem when he grows up. And so as soon as he's old enough to realize that time is passing, he slows time down for himself and his family and everybody around them. OK, which is why the Marvel Universe seems to go in pretty much real time up to the point when Franklin is born and then. <laughs> <laughs> gets radically slower. Okay. So wow. you know, I'll buy that. I, I, um, yeah, he gets a no price. Sure. <laughs> you know, there, there is a lot to be said for the concept of the no prize because the, the no prize, the no prize mm-hmm. was not for pointing out an error. The no pro, the no prize was for Excellent. coming up with a reason yeah. why the apparent error is actually fine. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Okay, um, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that. I think, I think it's a fine and fun little tradition and it's not going to interfere with my enjoyment of the stories one way yeah. or the other. Yeah. I mean, I, I would almost interject for me, like, having read, I don't know, a good 30 years worth of uh, Avengers comics, there was a point in time where they, they kind of start to repeat themselves. And mm-hmm. and sometimes those errors in continuity are like actually the thing that's keeping it interesting. Because I don't necessarily <laughs> enjoy the the issue that occurs every like three years where they're like, oh, we're going to redo the roster again and again mm-hmm. and again mm-hmm. and somebody's going to be mad that they're not on the roster again like let's just like there is a point as a fan where like that's not what you're here for i guess okay. the thing is like while i was reading all these comics and i was reading some real bad comics some really <laughs> but a, a kind of stockholm syndrome kind of sank, sank in, uh, where there was something to enjoy in just about every issue no matter how bad it was because I would see some creator doing something that was really characteristic of their personal idiolect. Like, this is, I don't really enjoy this, but this is the way this person draws, and it's kind of cool to see them doing the thing they do. Uh, I could I could convince myself of that up to a point. He says, stifling a sob. I'll, I'll, I'll just say Rob Liefeld fits there for me. You, you know, you don't, you don't have to diss anybody. Rob Liefeld had, I, I actually have a great deal of appreciation for Rob Liefeld doing his thing. He does a thing. I will say, like, when <laughs> When Rob Liefeld Liefeld first shows up, Mm -hmm. he's doing a couple of fill-ins on X-Men and and, uh, New Mutants, and his stuff is a breath of fresh air. It has so much energy to it. 
Mm-hmm. It's got technical problems all over the place, but it is alive. It is new. It's fresh. It moves. It's fun to make fun of. But like, there's there's incredible force and energy there for mm-hmm. all of its like technical problems. Yeah. And I mean, that was so much there that I I wasn't paying attention. And at the time, I, I wasn't a fan of of that work at all. And I. A friend of ours who who now works professionally in comics, uh, Ed Pisker, who did the, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, the, uh, yeah I've, I've known Eddie since he was like eight years yeah. old, eight, yeah, eighteen years old. I, I taught, <laughs> Which is weird him, that he, <laughs> yeah, taught him in a class for wow. comics when he was young. Um, there was a epic collection of Wolverine stories, and he picks up, he flips through, and there's like two or three Rob Liefeld stories, and just and Eddie was that age at that time. He grew up with the Image books and the, those Marvel books, and he loves those guys. He recognizes the limitations in the art and whatever. He still loves that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, he said, you, know, you look through this. There's you know, there's 25 issues of Wolverine stories in this book. If you just glance through it. Real quickly, the only ones you know are the Liefeld books. Yep, and he's absolutely right. Yes, it is. It is. It is. He is. Um, he, he starts at a point where he is, and this is no longer true. Like I don't know that he, that he would stand out as much in twenty twenty one because other people are doing this. But at the point in which he shows up in nineteen eighty nine ninety, he is very different from what anyone else in mm-hmm. Marvel is doing at that time. Like no one's, even Jim Lee, who is there and you know is was known for being technically proficient the the marvel style is still evident in lee's work at that time it is not in rob's <laughs> like rob is doing his own thing and very much so that says something I, yeah. I guess it your your approach to to looking at rob makes me want to ask about your actual reading process okay. I, I know for me like when i was doing my thesis work um sometimes i'm reading through things like on the subway as fast as I possibly can, because you are trying to like mine for the thing that you know that you need when you're reading these things, because you just, the thing that you need is to read all of them. How do you actually (laughs) go about that? How much time are you putting into each one? How much are you consuming at one in one reading session? Like, what is that process like? I read them in pretty much any environment I could get away with it for a while because, you know, I had a lot. I had a giant spreadsheet and I was just like, all right, just got to get through this. Uh, I've got six hours set aside for reading today and by God, I'm going to read and maybe I'll read them on the treadmill and maybe I'll read them sitting on the couch. And if it's boring, I'll go pretty fast. And if it's something that's engaging me, I'll go a little slower. Um, I had a clip file, uh, which a lot of which got turned into a Tumblr. But whenever I hit something, that was particularly interesting like okay let's clip that let's post that let's uh keep track of this because i i didn't know exactly what i was looking for this is the thing like i I didn't go in with like these are the themes that i'm I'm going to find it's it's not going to be about okay anything that pertains to mysticism and the sublime and the aetera like that's good yeah uh no um, it was like, let's let's just read all of these and then see what what emerges when I can look at them from a distance. And sometimes that meant it meant that, you know, I would be read. I read the entire run of Maverick. I could not tell you what happens in a single issue of Maverick. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> there are, uh, you know, there are 75 issues of X-Men. I read every one of them. Little bits and pieces are probably still alive in my mind memory but i kind of had to push through those pretty fast on the other hand you know our friend nicole um, frame would would know would know the history of of x-man 
Um, <laughs> I don't know that anybody like if you if you quite possibly are the only person on the planet who read every issue of Maverick, like I, including the <laughs> editorial staff. I'm like, I just I, I've, I've, those those are not good. Yeah. <laughs> Name shared yeah. aside, they're not. <laughs> not I mean, they, they they were special to somebody. You know? Sure, there's yeah. there's somebody who thought yeah. who, who thought it was a good idea at the time. Um, there's like there's a Maverick story that was in Wolverine about five months ago. Like Maverick shows up, and clearly Ben Percy, who wrote that story, is somebody who thought Maverick was the coolest thing ever at the time, <laughs> and is now coming back to it, however many years later, and going like, okay, what what's interesting about this character? What can I mind from this character to make an interesting story now? But that you know. They're all there and they're all there for somebody yeah. who is maybe not me. Um, and, and, and I, that's something I definitely discovered over the years working with a clientele. Every character is somebody's favorite character. Yeah. Every, every book has a fan base. Uh, mm-hmm. I had someone who just kind of, you came to it late. She was in her thirties, came to, to Marvel a little bit late, was going back and picking stuff up and just genuinely became a fan and kind of lost her mind over Nomad. Yeah. Um, uh, Jack Monroe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and those books are good. Damn it. Well, yeah. And I know you're a fan and, and yeah. I'm, I'm not even <laughs> dissing it. I, I'm just saying that you know, that's, that's this completely random thing that she just really got way into. Yeah, I remember um, <laughs> because, because, uh, because quite possibly the store you worked at was the only store that was ordering two issues of, of Nomad. Um, cause I, cause I, I have every single issue of Nomad. Well, I adore well, that book. Yeah. Well, and part of the reason we were ordering is because Rick Mays, who, who yes, drew the book for a long time, is a yeah. Pittsburgh native and we all know him. So. Yes, yeah, so uh-huh. we, we, we know Rick. Yeah. So, so I, I was also able to hook her up with some original art, which, which, mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah. So, even, but but Rick leaves the book and, and and okay so here's the thing honestly Nomad does get I, I mean Fabian Nicieza writes every issue of Nomad and I think he understands that some of them aren't great like it it, it sort of overstays its welcome um, and no one's reading it in the country except for me and you know Rick Mays when he's drawing it and that's it and it's um and um and it's just like I don't know Nomad gets rid of the baby at some point and then like the book becomes pointless because it was yeah. lone wolf and cub and then they got rid yeah, of exactly yeah. part. <laughs> like it's like oh this is not interesting anymore it's only interesting when you carry the baby but also you know th- there's stuff that occasionally popped out at me that did not land at the time or did not find its audience at the time uh there's uh, a man thing series from like 1998 it's jam dematis and liam sharp and it's like the best work liam sharp has ever done uh, it is a gorgeous gorgeous comic and it runs eight issues and then it gets derailed into a new strange tales anthology except that strange tales anthology gets canceled after two issues so there's two issues worth of it that were may or may not have been written and drawn and were never published but then there's a spider-man annual the next year that kind of like refers to stuff that happened in those issues that never (laughs) came out out. (laughs) 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 yeah that that comes up on uh, that sort of thing comes up on my other show on on gosh golly wow when we, we, claremont will sometimes refer in in excalibur to see you know see phoenix special number two coming out next year no such book it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, never okay you, you know what I, I will tell you what the, the what that became oh that so, yeah became... We, we know, okay, yeah, you know okay, you're um one of my co-hosts is andrew demand who runs the claremont run yeah we're we're, okay. we're, we're so, so it's, you, yeah it's, yeah spoilers uh, will be revealed 
and gosh, golly, wow, in about uh, six months, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, that, that, that one did get resolved with AOE. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Sort of. like, Might just tell you this story someday, true believer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, that, but that sort of thing. I mean, and that's kind of because you talk about how you read and you're, you're reading, you were just saying, you're reading in random order. You're not doing the thing you're not going all right i'm going to start at because okay so the obvious thing to do is to start at say fantastic four number one or maybe captain america comics number one or whatever you know some arbitrary point and say and now we're going to branch out in continuity error uh, Mm, uh, order and then and literally go crazy you'll you will go crazy you will lose your mind again i read all of solid you will not just lose your mind you'll get bored really fast right yeah so I, so I, so i appreciate that you didn't but uh, you, you say you had a spreadsheet and so you're just checking it off and it's like, all right, well, I guess I'll get through all of these eventually. But like, how are you how are you keeping them straight? You said you're keeping, you know, you're keeping notes and stuff. But like, are, are themes just sort of emerging as you go? Are you are you they like really somehow, are. somehow 200 issues into Fantastic Four and you're like, oh, my God, I got it. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's what happened. That's what happened when I was reading X-Men. That's what happened when I was reading Spider-Man. That's what happened when I was reading Thor. Like at a certain point when I see some things come up, they pop up and then like they're on my radar and I can't escape them. And that's a really, really interesting phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's explicit callbacks and sometimes it's just, no, this is what is at the heart of this character or this series or this group or this creator's work. And now it's there and I keep seeing it turning up. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that you just kind of like have to brute force until you get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the interesting creators are the ones who deliberately or intuitively have a sense of that. And you see that again and again, like the people who can find whatever is part of the story and turn it into their story and turn all of the weird stuff that came before it into part of their story. You see it with what Grant Morrison did with the X-Men and again with Batman. You see it with uh, Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk, which is just Mm -hmm. absolutely spectacular. Yeah. You see it with the way that uh, Jonathan Hickman has been synthesizing all this weird stuff into X-Men and taking one of the things that has been the messiest things to make enjoying X-Men, one of the biggest obstacles to enjoying like a giant long run of X-Men, which is these characters keep dying and then coming back to life over and over and over and he just he doesn't just hang a lantern on that he makes that the central thrust of the story and all of a sudden becomes a fascinating thing mm-hmm. yeah i'm really enjoying that yeah. series right now yeah, yeah. Um, how often did you want to quit? <laughs> um, because I imagine there is like a point where, I mean, I, I, I can, I can see myself going, doing this for like, you know, for like three, four weeks and being like, oh my God, what have I done? Six months is like, fuck it. I'll write some other book. And then, and then, you know, but like, I, I imagine after like two or three years, you're like, I'm pot committed. This is, we're, we're going to get through this somehow, you know, if it's, if it kills me, you know? So uh, when does that happen? There were two really hard moments. Uh, one of them was the funny hard moment. One of them was the not funny hard moment. Uh, the not the not funny hard moment I'll get to first, which is I wrote the first version of this book and I finished it and I took a breath and I showed it to my editor and my editor was like, this is terrible. Oh, God. <laughs> this, oh, that's this, what you want to Yeah, that's what you want to hear. This absolutely does not fly. And these are the reasons why. Mm-hmm. And he was right. Like it was it did. It did not work. I ended up scrapping something like 90% of that version and just wow. re- reconceiving the entire thing and starting over. 
mm-hmm. and just making it a very, very different and vastly better thing. I'm okay. much, much happier with the final version, but it did. I, I did go kind of nuts for a while there. Um, just trying to figure out like, okay, how, how do I take this self-indulgent mess of a thing that I've written and can I salvage things from it? Or do I, you know, I have done all this reading. I've done all this background. I know there's something in here. How can I make something new that's going to work? Well, the research and, and the research is still there. I mean, that that's advice for every student that I've ever had, every writing student, comp student who I've ever had. When I'm saying kill your darling to him, then don't be afraid to throw stuff out. You know, that revision is yeah. part of the process. So that's hard lesson, but a lot of bravery involved yeah. in that. So, yeah, the, I mean, this wasn't even revising. This was just like it all has to go. Mm-hmm. You, you're doing it. You're doing a different, different and better book. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, I will say that the this chapter that was the most fun to write, I realized even while I was writing it, was not going to be able to make the cut. Um, but that is, I'm actually like printing that up as a little chap book to send as a freebie to, to people who pre-ordered it from my favorite local store. Um, and it, it is a very silly chapter and it is also a hyper, hyper nerdy chapter. Um, well, now we want to know what it's on because, you know, so, <laughs> it, it is a, uh, completely contrafactual history of Marvel comics in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, proceeding from the premise that the breakthrough comic that made everything different in 1961 was in fact Linda Carter student nurse number one <laughs> and that you know, everything after that was Lee and Ditko and Kirby and various other people who were working at or for Marvel at the time doing a line of thoughtful, beautiful, gorgeously drawn comics about young professional women. So, you know, uh, Amazing Adult Fantasy changes its title to Amazing Adults and its last issue is called Betty of the Bugle. And it's about Betty Brandt uh, and her like family struggles and, and trying to get by at the at newspaper. And that spins off into her own series, which becomes a TV show. And, and you, know, you get the idea. Um, so that, that, that kind of thing, like obviously like the finished book, it's not really it's not really the place for that. But I, I had a lot of fun writing um, the other kind of like, OK, this is where. I know I'm getting paid to write this book, but I'm just going to have to muscle through this moment was when I had to lock myself into an apartment for two weeks and read all of the Punisher. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was it it was it was an interesting experience. Um, So that was not a jumping in and out experience because you said most of these you just like, oh, I'm going to read whatever. But you just you're like, okay, we're just going to read Punisher for two weeks and and hope that I'm sane when I get out. Yeah, I mean, um, there's some there's some characters that I would read like a whole lot of at once. I I read, you know, the Hulk for days on end. I read Spider-Man for days on end with a few little breaks. But I was like, and, you know, at some point I'll get around to the Punisher. And I kept not getting around to the Punisher. I was like, all right, I have to take my punishment now. (laughs) Discipline and punish. This is the like, and so we, it was just like sitting in the apartment, drinking protein shakes, um, <laughs> eating cherry tomatoes. It, it was like a David Bowie's mid seventies diet of uh, yeah, green, he, he, green, he, green pepper, green peppers, and milk. Uh, red peppers, milk, and cocaine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> cocaine. Yes, you can't forget yeah, the but, cocaine. But no, no cocaine, just like protein, protein shakes, um, <laughs> and just keeping track of the Punisher's body count and you know i realized that given the uh, marvel 
scene versus kind of compressed timeline. The fact that it's about four or five years of comics to one year of actual events. That makes him the worst serial cult killer in New York's history. Yes. <laughs> Wayne, you want to you want to take that one because you, you you have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> this has come up. In, I don't know if this has ever come up on the show before, but Wayne and I have discussed this. And Wayne's problem with the existence of of um of Punisher in the same universe as Captain America. Yeah, yeah, I, I I've said you know, and the Punisher as a character concept, fine. You know, I mean, there are legitimate stories to tell. I'm not a fan of the character, and this is that continuity thing. It's like you know in. In the Marvel Universe that I know and love, Captain America wouldn't go to bed tonight until the Punisher was in jail. Just, you know, he just he, he wouldn't allow that. There would be no team ups. He wouldn't be asked to join the Avengers. No, no, I'll, I'll use rubber bullets today, though. It's OK. Just today, rubber bullets. Yeah, right. Just yeah, it's just I have, have that piece of continuity has always felt weird to me of like, yeah, I well, there, there was the, the Justice League. Avengers crossover. Yeah. And it was this great, you know, off panel kind of thing. We don't even see the Punisher. Like Batman disappears for two panels. He goes, <laughs> he comes back and like, where were you? Like, I yeah, just, uh, there was this guy with a skull on his shirt. I had to put him down. <laughs> that, that's not an exact quote, but it's just like, just completely dismissive. And you're not in my city. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes sense. But like, I mean, I, I guess um, if you're going to, and this is, this is goes into, you know, where my dissertation goes. Um, but like only briefly, I mean, this is you've done something that I kind of brush off in two pages. You turned into an entire book, which is why this is fascinating to me. There's the idea of continuity of, you know, you've got to have a universe where where Galactus is trying to eat planets at the same time as this Vietnam that is, you know, killing just random guys on the street. Like like the, like this needs to the conceit of your book is that this is all one story, right? Like yeah. as unlikely and ridiculous as it is. Frank Castle's war has to match up with Quasar, right? So, yeah. And, and Galactus and like how that makes sense. So what's amazing about it is that you've been able to reconcile that, right? Like, and, and part of that is, you know, the process of writing it is interesting to me because again, I mean, I've, I, I've read the issues where Punisher becomes a black dude for three issues, you know, just cause and Luke Cage is just kind of okay with it. And let's not, let, let's, let's ignore the obvious problems. Um, I've read these and some of them are bad <laughs> and like, there's, and, and I've read other stuff. There's like, you know, there's silver age stuff that just makes no sense. And it's okay to laugh at that. Like I, I actually enjoy them. You've heard other episodes of the show, you know, I enjoy a lot of what are functionally really bad comics, but I'm not trying to explain, use them and trying to make them make sense in a way that you sort of gave yourself the job of having to do. I mean, obviously you're not going to, like you obviously don't review every issue ever, ever. So if something's just really stupid, I guess you can just skip it, but still like there's like so much crap and also not even just crap, just weird discontinuity of, you know, incongruous. I've got to fit Punisher into this world within a, with fantastic four and tell some kind of story that is interesting to me, like that you gave yourself you know that job and that you pulled it off. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I, I don't, I don't necessarily see a giant conflict there. At least, not a conflict of a scale that ruins my ability to kind of hold it, hold it all in my head at once. Uh, and I think that there are ways that, that there are stories that have addressed those things and those kind of not continuity errors, but discontinuities of scale in kind of interesting ways. Like near the end, I'm talking about uh, there's a couple of unbeatable Squirrel Girl stories that involve Galactus. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah. in absolutely charming, delightful, kind of sense-making ways. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they know that there's something really absurd going on and they make it work by just playing it straight and maybe acknowledging like, yeah, wow, this is real unlikely, this thing that's happening. OK, great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, and I people have asked me, you know, have, as someone who's grown up with this stuff, how I hold it on or how I make it, how I hold it on my head, how I make it fit, and I just, it just, it always has, you know, like I just, I, it's the way I learned to read, mm-hmm. so it all makes sense to me in a certain way that it might not to someone new coming into it. Um, question that came up before before you signed on, Douglas, was um, we were talking ahead of time. You talk about this, and I I tend to agree with you. I'm just curious what your thought processes were. This being the the longest single narrative in human history. Um, We have DC Comics. What's your reasoning for choosing Marvel over DC in that? And I think I know where you're going with this, but I'm just I'm curious for our listeners. Let me say, first of all, I was a DC kid. Mm-hmm. Like that, you know, I started out Green Lantern, The Flash. The, these these were my things. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a little while to get into the the weirdness of like this other com- this other company. Of course, you know, you're 10 years old. Uh, there's two there's two different kinds of comics, Marvel and DC. Like uh, I like both <laughs> kinds of music, country and Western. Right. Um, right. <laughs> the difference there is that DC has hit the reset button a couple times. Mm-hmm. And they have hit the reset button all the way. They have yes. said like, okay, everything before this point is an entirely separate thing. We're taking similar kinds of characters, and we're we're starting over. Start here, start fresh. Marvel has never done that, mm-hmm. right? And they have. That's had, exactly what I assumed. You mm-hmm. where, where you're going with this, uh-huh. uh, but but I, I think for for the listeners, I think that's an important mm-hmm. distinction. There is there is a history that goes not just back to 1961, but really kind of before that in a lot of ways. And the story has come up with reasons why stuff published before 1961 may or may not be entirely reliable, blah, blah, blah. But it kind of it kind of is. It kind of all happened one way or another. And so there is this historical force in the background of all of Marvel's stories to this day that goes back a long ways. There's a lot to there's a lot that they can draw on, whether they draw on it or not. And maybe they're drawing on more recent things that draw on the older things. DC just kind of has like name recognition. And in fact, now what you're seeing with them is that they're taking the tack like, okay, everyone knows who Batman is. Just do a Batman story. Yeah, we're not going to we're not going to do something that is a consequence of a Batman story from 1975. Uh, It's just you know who Batman is. Here's some Batman for you. Here's mm-hmm. kind of a lot of Batman for you, actually. Yeah. I think yes. something like half their line right now is Batman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that's different. And I love historical force in mm-hmm. long narratives. One of my favorite comics ever is Judge Dredd. Mm. And the British Judge Dredd series has been published since 1977. It takes place in real time. It has been weekly since 1977. So it's you know almost 45 years of story at this point. The characters are all 45 years older than they were at the beginning. And their environment has been transformed completely over that time. There has been massive, massive political and social change that this story has been documenting for 45 years. And I should say also one amazing thing about Judge Dredd is that something like 50, 60 percent of it since the beginning has been written by one guy. 
or mm-hmm. co-written by like John Wagner. Like he's been he hasn't always been writing, but he his hand has always been in there somewhere. And that's a 45 year long story. There are events that happen in stories that came out this year that are consequences of things that happened 25 or 35 years ago. Uh, there's you know, this way in which some of the early dread stories are this fantasy of political violence with no consequences. And then 30 years later, the pigeons come home to roost. Mm-hmm. And that's amazing. Yeah. Like that's a remarkable thing for a story to do. And, and if, you just, don't, if you have that possible history and you cut it off, then you're cutting off that power. Mm-hmm. What you're describing is exactly what I love about Love and Rockets. Uh, I mean, Hernandez's stuff. Yeah, I've been there from almost the beginning. Uh, His characters are about my age, and they still are about my age. And and that comes back. You know, we we see that there there was a story a couple years ago of forty years ago. We see all these these characters of his going out to punk clubs and having adventures as as late teens, early twenties. And thirty years later, they have a reunion and they go to a concert. And you know, like the the young punk chick is now middle aged and she's there with her daughter. And so much comes out and of that. And is doing like acoustic versions of her old hits. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's just having and being older myself, having lived through all this stuff, there is this resonance to, oh, yeah, we get older, we change, we grow. But that stuff still has meaning. And I, I think you're right. When when there is no history, there is no continuity. A lot of meaning gets lost with that. Yeah. Well, I, and I, I'm in the middle of rereading, nearly the end of rereading uh the Starman series from the 1990s. Oh, wow. Which I, I loved at the time. And I'm once again rereading it. And it's like, this is so good. And it's something that DC simply could not do, wouldn't do now, because it's all about history and coming to grips with the past. And this is even post-crisis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but the, you know, the entire essence theme of that series is how the past affects the present. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, it, and so much of what, was brilliant about that series would just be impossible to even attempt at DC under you know, in the last 15 years, probably to make just concessions. But I would argue that the Stargirl TV show is in a very different kind of narrative yes. than what um, Starman did. It's doing, it's doing that. Yeah, it's doing right. that project, I would argue. Yes. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know who I don't know how into that right. our listeners are. Yeah, Robinson's yeah. writing a lot of the, the series. So. Yeah, okay. And, and um, you're you're right. It is attempting to do that. It's trying to. Yeah, it's trying again. Very different narrative. Like mm-hmm. very different right. story. Courtney is not Jack. Like that's right. Yeah, right. but but I think and Jeff Johns is not. You know, <laughs> I, I, like I get why it's not. I, I get why it's a different target audience. But I I feel like the project is the same. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, part of the difference is. They have to tell you the history over the course of it. It's not building on something that is pre-existing. That's true. That's true. They 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 can they can make things. Mi- so the Stargirl TV show is not beholden to any any ex exant published material. Right. So right. they can they can point at the past and just pretend it was always there. You know, so right. the narrative is not mm-hmm. it's, it's not like something that's pre-published by some other author 50 years ago. So that right. there, there is a difference there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I guess. Um, and you you mentioned this, I think, in your the introduction, uh, you do an entire chapter on Shang-Chi, which, yeah. uh, you know, five years ago seemed like an unlikely choice. But uh, oddly enough, right now, <laughs> yeah, I was con- I was convinced when I started writing about Master of Kung Fu, like, OK, so there's never going to be a Master Kung Fu movie. There's never going to be a Master <laughs> Kung Fu game. There's never going to be. And two months ago, I bought a, a Shang-Chi little golden book. 
it's great. And like, there's one page where there are a couple characters who are very clearly like Clive Reston and Blackjack Tar. Like yeah. this is a little golden book by somebody who like knew the comics and knew that like, OK, this has to conform to what the movie is going to be. But let's let's get some little little nods to the comics in there, too. Nice. Yeah. I, that was a series I, I loved as a kid. Uh, Paul Galassi went to the Pittsburgh Art Institute. Oh, wow. Uh, and so probably the the first piece of actual real comic book art I had, we had a representative come to my art class at my high school and, and just show samples of stuff. And they had an original Master Comic uh, page. Wow. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that's the first original page of comic book art I ever saw. Uh, and and I was a place big, to start. Yeah. yeah and I was a, a big fan of the book at the time. And, and, you know, so much of that is just lost now. I mean, the, for years, it just, you know, it wasn't available because of rights. And, yeah. and, and you, and you talk about, you know, it's problematic as are many, many things in comic. Master of Kung Fu is super, super problematic. Like, yeah. I had read some of it when I was younger and really enjoyed it at the time. And I thought like, okay, is this, is this something where when I come back to it, it's going to be going to have been visited by the suck fairy. And <laughs> <laughs> The thing it like it is both really problematic in ways that I would not have been able to see when I was younger yep. and has also in some ways aged incredibly well. Like I was going through the, the books and reading it and I just remember like going, this is so good. This is so good. This is amazing. I want to talk about that like, for a little bit if we if you don't mind, because I yeah. you make a you make a really interesting point in this book. I uh, before you before you join the call. Wayne and I were talking about um, how one of the things that you do is a joke that I often make, um, which is I always say um, in lots of blog posts of mine, I'll say um, never read the comments online. I do it so you don't have to never read this never read these books. I do it so you don't. Have to. And you say that in the book, you know, do not do this. I, I, I subjected myself to this so that you don't have to. And you also point out uh, very early on, you point out that you're not going to apologize for you. You say some of these are really bad and you are that that badness cannot be a reason to exclude stuff and you acknowledge that you you acknowledge the problematic nature of um, representation throughout the history uh, of, yeah. of comics, yeah, and you say I'm not excusing it. In fact, uh, in fact, I believe you. You take a political stance right uh, early on, where you're like, no, no, a lot of this is crap. You 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 you, you say that right on hand. Mm. So, how do you justify something like Shang Chi? I'm a little different than you. Wayne will remember this. Um, uh, almost exactly five years ago, I was saying that there would be a Shang Chi movie um, because uh, when they started talking about is just before it happened when they started talking about the Iron Fist show and there was this point where Wayne you remember having these conversations with me Mm -hmm. the internet was like well we can fix this and we can we can make Iron Fist you know why don't we make an Asian guy and that will fix everything because the internet likes to have ideas where they decide that um, they've decided something and it goes viral and then people got mad before Iron Fist was ever filmed Not, not and I'm not defending Finn Jones and saying he did a great job but he had an impossible job to do because people hated him from the moment he was cast because people were like, well, we thought you were going to cast an Asian person. Marvel never said that. Not once. There's no interview where anybody, where Feige or anybody involved says we're looking for an Asian actor. That was something people suggested and then decided would happen. And I said, when 
when that happened? No, because if you do that, then it won't be Iron Fist. It will be Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. And people are like, well, that's totally different. I'm like, no, totally different to you because you're adding this history. In the, but like, I've I have read all the all of these books because of my job and like, they're, and they're and it's conceptually, you know, they premiere a year apart from each other. Conceptually, they are the same series with the same problematic tropes, other than the fact that one of them's a white savior and one's not. What makes the original Iron Fist different than the original Shang-Chi is that Iron Fist is a white dude. That's the difference. Otherwise, they're both just rip off some Bruce Lee and poor ones at that early on. So like, but there's so much of it that I love. I love a lot of Master of Kung Fu because given this problematic nature of Okay, let's start with, I mean, from the from the very beginning, it's how do we lump in Fu Manchu stories, which are problematic to start with. But we're going to do this because this is what we're doing, damn it. And so we're going to put this in here. And I think a lot of what organically grew over 20 years out of this super racist moment is some quality. And I'm using this this light. I'm, I'm using this this word very lightly and loosely. But I think there's a lot of quality storytelling that came out of that. And I know you say at the beginning that you don't want to you know, you don't want to disqualify something just because it's going to be racist or sexist because that's so much of the industry. But you still do have to do it. And you seem like from, you know, it seems like you're trying to like sort of juggle that. You know what I'm asking? Like you're you're trying to like juggle the appropriateness of it and still tell the story that you need to tell. Well, I mean, certainly something not not to interrupt you, Douglas, but I I, I don't know that you're disqualifying any of this stuff. I mean, I know in my history classes, just straight up acknowledge from the beginning, you're going to see a lot of problematic images and we're going to talk about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to discuss why this is problematic in the context of the time it's presented and why it didn't seem as problematic to them then. You know, that that's part of the history. Or they uh, didn't care. Yeah. I mean, so, OK, a couple of things on this. First of all, what's special, what ended up being special about Master Kung Fu as a series and Shang-Chi as a character as he was in the first the first 10 years of his comics is not so much that he's a Bruce Lee ripoff like that's kind of part of the fun of the visual side of it but it's that it's an espionage story starring mm-hmm. a character who thinks that the whole project of espionage is monstrous mm-hmm. and who has a guilty conscience that he's trying to that he's trying to work off like okay that is an angle for a character the other thing about him is that as Doug Mensch wrote him this is an action hero who completely lives in his head, who is just devoted to thinking about himself and thinking about his actions and thinking about what he's done and trying to read the patterns of it and obsessively going over it and still jumping over some parts of his past and his history and the violence in which he has been complicit that are too much for him. And he represses those and he jumps over it. like that makes him a super interesting character to watch. Mm, okay. And there's also the, all this other stuff. And there's the beautiful artwork. There's the like crazy super spy action, too. But the guilty action hero who like, is completely introverted when he's not kicking ass. Like that's that's something special. That's something original. I think that you know, if you're going to read these stories for the things that are special about them, you do have to acknowledge that there are some really embarrassing things about them. And you know, there are perfectly good reasons to nope out of reading Master of Kung Fu. 
Uh, you, there, there are things that you can look at and go, no, no, I'm uh, like, I don't care how I see. It's very beautiful. I see that there's some special things going on. Here. I can't take it anyway. It's That's Fu fine. Manchu. It's like yeah. from the very beginning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's Fu Manchu in this thing from the beginning. And you have uh, people, you know, so, like throwing a knife and saying, eat cold steel, pajama boy. You know, right. um, yikes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the same time like there really is some special stuff going on there if you're willing to go like okay so there's there's some stuff that's also going to be hard to deal with and one of the things i was trying to do in the chapter is talk about how the dialogue about this stuff was going on in the comic itself in mm-hmm. the letters pages in mm-hmm. particular there were some very very strong thoughtful angry critiques of what was going on in Master of Kung Fu, published in Master of Kung Fu mm-hmm. on its letters pages. There were debates that were going on from issue to issue. There were repeat correspondence. There's one guy in particular, William Wu, who I ended up like talking to for the book, who was the correspondent whose letters were printed more than anybody else's in Master of Kung Fu. And he had no patience for the Fu Manchu stuff. <laughs> he like called out the like what is up with coloring Asian characters bright yellow, you know. In nineteen seventy whatever. Yeah. yeah. In nineteen seventy whatever. And he's calling them out and he's engaging them and they listen. Mm-hmm. I, I found that to be one of the most fascinating aspects of that chapter. And it yeah. the the perspective to me is how much yes, there's the internet and there's Twitter, but not reading this stuff without the letters pages. There's this whole other level of context yeah. that you get from those that, that people just don't have the opportunity to see. You know, I, 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 when I read the comics as a kid, I read all the letters pages. It was just you know, more content and, and part of that conversation. Whereas now I pretty much ignore Twitter because everybody's just jabbering. <laughs> I will say that the letters pages from old comics are sometimes included in digital versions. They're definitely yeah. included in the omnibuses. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a really smart choice on, on the part of the publishers. It's really interesting to look back at letter columns from the 60s, especially, and see who is writing in to mm-hmm. Marvel's comics? Because one name after another is, I think, in the first 25 issues of Fantastic Four, there are letters from the next three editors in chief of Marvel. Yeah. As well as, you know, 14 year old George, George R. R. Martin. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, all these all these names, all these people who went on to be comics writers, comics artists, people who did things in the creative worlds outside outside comics. Um, there is a, a letter in, I think, Amazing Spider-Man number, I think, 600. The editor has something in the letters column like, OK, yeah, so our first letter column was in Amazing Spider-Man number three. How many of you are still reading now at number 600? And a few of them wrote in. And one of them is you know, the guy who writes the Dick Clark specials every year and who has written a bunch of books for Billboard. And it was like, you know, I wrote that when I was nine years old and I wanted to be a writer. And that's what I ended up being. That's, that's amazing. Cool. That's, that kind yeah. of incredible long term engagement. Mm-hmm. And you, know, you have Stanley, you know, join the Mary Marvel Marching Society, like right in and you get to be part of our giant cultural project. And that's obviously a lie. And also turned out to be true. You know, I, I, I was a friend of old Marvel. I was a little too young for the marching society. But, uh. <laughs> uh, you, you know who came up with the idea of, of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, 
Oh, I guess the, the ranks, the PMM, per, Permanent Marvelite Maximus, and all, yeah. all of those I, ranks. I know, I know I've read this, but remind me. It's Mark Evanier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's a teenage fan at the time. Had not started to work with Jack Kirby yet. Just writing in as a fan. I have a great idea. Why don't you have ranks for your readers? Yeah. Amazing. It's amazing. You just mentioned Kirby and yeah. um, and we we are as guilty of this as anybody on our show when we do comic shows. Um, mm-hmm. And one of my one of my big criticisms with the way comics academic criticism mm-hmm. often goes is because it's been built out of a literary studies tradition. Yeah. People like me, um, people tend to approach comics criticism as though we are analyzing a novel. All that matters is the text. Ignoring uh-huh. the fact that like there are pictures there and, yeah. and a lot of the, and you know we talked a little bit about, about Rob Liefeld earlier um, and now we're talking about Kirby. Um, Monica, you mentioned like you know the, the Wasp but like knowing your work I know it's about like literally her ever-changing um, menagerie of outfits. Do you have thoughts on evolution of artwork as well as for, because we talked about like, you know, you, you mentioned in the book very specifically, yes, stories in Silver Age comics are, it's, it's a very different beast than what you're reading in the 90s or what you're reading in the 2020s, right? Like it's just, stories are written in a different way. They're, and the continuity works, in a, but like they're drawn in a different way too. There's an evolution of, there's an evolution of just what a superhero costume is. We've done, we've done a whole mm-hmm. episode on that. You know, why is underwear on the outside of your clothes, right? That, that's, that's how, that's one of, your, one of Monica's earliest episodes. But also we've just the evolution of where artwork is. Like there's a reason why not just, not just the Rob Liefelds and the Jim Lees, but the Rob Liefelds and the Jim Lees grow out of a, tra- of a tradition that we've talked about on the show before of moving from the Busimas to the Lees of the world. And I, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, that revealed themselves through reading some 500,000 pages. And there's, there's so much, I mean, there are artists that I came away from this with a much greater appreciation for, one of them is actually Sal Buscema, mm-hmm. um, who I had always thought of as like the guy who could be counted on to hit the deadline. And there was a period where he was drawing something like five titles a month yes. for Marvel. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody other than Kirby, like unbelievable, like top speed. And frankly, more consistently than Kirby. I'm a huge Kirby fan. Like everybody else, Jack Kirby had no sense of visual continuity whatsoever. And quote me, I mean, like seriously, like <laughs> com- costumes changed from panel to panel because Jack couldn't be bothered to look back two inches. So, so. <laughs> he's, he's, he's always moving on to the next thing. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah. But also, uh, when you start seeing seeing what Bissem is doing, just in terms of raw storytelling, just in terms mm-hmm. of like presenting visual information on the page and leading the eye, showing you what you need to see, he's fantastic at it. And when you see him with an inker who is going to not just follow the kind of like weird blocky geometric outlines that Selby Semic gave him, but kind of impose some personality on it. Uh, sometimes when Bissema inks himself, when Bill Sienkiewicz is inking him, when Aiken and Garvey are inking him, when Kyle Baker is inking him. Rubenstein. S- Rubenstein, yeah. His work just comes alive all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Like It has so much character and presence, and that, that was an interesting thing to see. I think one giant change that's happened in the last 15 years worth of comics has been digital drawing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that 
like the fact that there are so many artists who are drawing digitally and the role of an inker in many ways has been ceded to colorists yeah. just in terms of texture and mood and background and feeling like colorists can and do do so much to the kind of visual storytelling that we're seeing now uh, i think that the shift toward writers as directors of the story has been it's been obvious it's made some changes i think it's been harmful in some ways um you mm. don't see as many people working quote marvel style as much anymore uh there are there are a lot of people who work full scripts now mm-hmm. uh, but also there's a a really wide and interesting range of style in a way that there hadn't been nearly as much of since the 60s. Uh, I mean, Ditko and Kirby and Heck and Gene Colan are all in their ways kind of stylistic outliers. Mm-hmm. And when Kirby and Ditko come back in the late 70s, by which point there's much more of a house style, suddenly their stuff looks really weird and almost antiquated in some ways. Mm-hmm. And there are a few people who branch out and do do visually interesting stuff in the 80s and 90s and beyond. Um, Sienkiewicz. Yeah. Sienkiewicz, obviously, but there's a lot of people who are doing interesting things, like mm-hmm. breaking the mold. Uh, not all of them are super superstars not all of them are doing things that are eye-catching in ways that people can really glom onto but there's there's some real interesting stuff happening occasionally but it's not until fairly recent times that you know there can be a book like uh, the 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 ultimates and ultimate squared where you have uh, people like you aiden koch i think drew drew a couple of issues of ultimates um there's the erica henderson stuff uh, happening in squirrel girl there's uh, there are a lot of artists whose stuff would have looked alien in the context of comics 15 years ago yeah who are doing things kind of regularly now in mainstream comics and i i I love seeing that. I love seeing the, the the breadth of visual things that that can happen. And even in terms of things that feel like house style, like Pepe Larraz. Pepe Larraz is amazing. And his stuff looks very, very slick. It looks like it's from that kind of burn to Jim Lee to onward beyond that kind of tradition. Mm-hmm. But just in terms of the thought he puts into his compositions and the the thought that he puts into what he includes and doesn't you know, his command of facial expressions and body language and just everything contributing to like what is the effect that we're going to get out of this he's absolutely astonishing i went off on so many tangents there i'm so sorry yeah, that that's oh, no. <laughs> that, that, that's what our show does yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you you fit in perfectly yeah uh, so so i, I want to so say can i just know. ask and and this may be a question of ignorance because I'm uh, the variable that hasn't yet read the book but in in your reading are you doing this as a as a page by page or as a panel by panel considering that things are now sometimes available digitally and sometimes you're still having to scrounge around for things that haven't been digitized yet i mean i i I read them however i could um sometimes i was reading physical comics sometimes i was reading things digitally i generally prefer to read like by the page rather than panel view uh 
with very few exceptions, I don't know if you saw, like just in the last couple of weeks, Marvel Unlimited has released something they call Infinity Comics as opposed to Infinite Comics, which was their yeah. last digital initiative. But Infinity Comics are, they are endless scrolling. They are like, just keep on scrolling up with your thumb. They are designed to be read on mobile devices. Oh, yeah. Um, and they're interesting because a couple of them are written and drawn specifically to take advantage of, like, we're going to set this story in a very tall vertical space <laughs> like make that since we know that's the way it's being read the story is about that and and follows through on that and yeah, that's that's interesting and I'm yeah, curious Scott, to see where it goes but scott mcleod did a, scott mcleod did a variation on that yeah. online 20 years ago with the zot mm-hmm. story yeah he totally did yeah. you know we had characters falling and you just scroll like following the motion lines yeah you know? mm-hmm. Yeah, but with McLeod's story and um, with the Zot story and with some other experimental stuff that McLeod has done on ScottMcLeod.com, mm-hmm. um, he is, and I guess that's what, you know, he is specifically not only trying to take advantage of it, but he's trying to experiment with the oh, form. Yeah. Like, it, it is literally, he, uh, McLeod does another story where um, it's a comic, but rather than turn the pages, because it was a hypertext comic, you click into it, you, yeah. and it's meant mm-hmm. to click through not like click to the next page but click into and 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 Dell you're supposed to be diving into the story so he's being mm-hmm. experimental um one of the flaws with many digital comics including the one that I did you know was I well like I I am thinking of it as a page that like you know, I'm thinking of it as a comic page I'm thinking of it as this will be in print one day and you are only viewing it on a website because or a phone or a tablet or whatever, because that is the convenient way of doing so. So, I mean, and part of this is old manness, right? Like you know, as an old man, I'm like, oh, you know, back in my day. But like, but I, I try to not I try to not think like that. But on the other hand, comics are if you're going to write them, most comics are written with that form in mind. Right. It is it is very odd that um to read a comic that is intended to be a left right two page spread but then it gets it shows up in a trade paperback and since we don't have an ad there anymore now this comic is on the wrong side so mm-hmm. the wrong thing is facing it like, so that is that is a distinction that happens when you're looking at like a silver or, or a silver age reprint or a, or a bronze age reprint that in if you're if you're looking at a book that was published originally in 2015 and it's collected in a trade that's not an issue because mm-hmm. th- because the final form isn't the monthly floppy. The final form is supposed to be the six issue trade. So you know, that is that is also a change that happens in storytelling where yes. like every sixth issue or every fifth issue has to be a point where you can stop there and have a reasonable end of story. Comics have always been driven by commercial concerns, by the way that they're going to be consumed. Like that's that's table stakes, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's, that's fair. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, there was uh, oh, you were asking about to how I read these things. Um, so there's there's two notes on that I want to add. One is that there are a few comics that Marvel made for digital formats that are now just gone. They are just lost. Uh, there are specifically comics that were made for AOL 20 or so years ago. And there was an AOL portal where you could read certain stories. And there's some of them. Marvel doesn't have a copy. The creators don't have copies. Nobody's got those stories are just gone. That's interesting. 
That's really sad. Yeah. <laughs> As a comic fan, uh, I'm just like, how can a comic be gone? Comics there's an <laughs> issue of Gambit that sort of refers to the events in one of them. And a few pages of that story have survived because somebody did a screen capture or whatever. But as far as we know, maybe it's maybe it's floating around out there somewhere. But maybe that story is just gone now. Which is interesting. Um, and the other the other sort of uh, side note to like, how did you read these? Uh, I read them in pretty much every environment I was in for three years, like the three years I spent <laughs> reading. So uh, there's a little thing in the, in the book about how I didn't mean to read any comics when I went to Burning Man one year. Uh, <laughs> then somebody had like set up a Stanley Memorial and behind the Stanley Memorial, there was a box uh, <laughs> and it had like a whole bunch of like 60s marvels in it. It had a sign saying, read me. And what was I going to do? Not read them. Um, and, uh, I mean, the signs said what do you what do you it would be rude this this story gets better this story gets better um so i decided like okay i'm going to do a little bibliomancy with this uh so i pulled out i'm gonna like pull out a random comic um i'm going to open it to a random page i'm going to point at the random panel i'm going to see what it says i did that and what i got was a panel from some late kirby fantastic four where somebody is like gasping about the dangers of radioactivity I was like, oh, okay. So that night I go out biking around the deep playa with a friend and we find a uh, we find a place to sit. And it's a bunch of crates that have been painted uh, with like radioactive and biohazard signs. And I was like, okay, maybe, you know, that maybe that was pointing me toward this. So like we're sitting on the crates and we're watching stuff go by and I I feel this little pain in my back and I'm not sure what it is, but it's fine. And the next day it turns out that that pain is a massive, massive spider bite. Now, there are no no spiders living in the Black Rock Desert. This is a prehistoric lake bed like there. There is no fauna there. Mm -hmm. But I was nonetheless bitten by one while I was sitting on. On a crate with biohazard and radioactivity signs on it. I was like, oh, great. I got bitten by a radioactive spider. Fantastic. <laughs> you have powers now. <laughs> I mean, and I would imagine. I I'd be, I'd be if, yeah, I'd be upset if I didn't, right? Yeah. None, of the, none of the power, all the responsibility. Yeah. I think that might be the best place to, to yeah. for us to end this. So, so we're resolved. <laughs> that, that's a great story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Douglas. This was great. We, yeah, this is blast. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, this was great. Um, I mean, it, it, this is, you know, when whenever we get to the resolve nothing point, we always like, well, <laughs> what did we really learn? And this isn't so much learning. I think the project is just fascinating. I mean, yeah. like I said, you know, why would you even do this? And I mean, part of me, you, you said it was from your son. When looking at it, I just thought, well, I mean, nerd cred alone is, you know, who else is going to do this? So like, like that, that was reason enough to, to try it. But oh, yeah, you know, I, I don't think you the- get, I don't think you get nerd cred for lack of discernment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly think you do. Yeah. <laughs> No different nerds but I, i'm wondering like if you had one big takeaway for yourself that you have learned from just from the endeavor what would it be um is there or is there anything or is it just like a, uh, oh my no, god you know I'm this you know over. <laughs> uh find your if you're writing a giant project find your community and get them to help you and read what you're doing and give you feedback instead of assuming you know what you're doing all the way 
that is my takeaway. I would I would recommend getting a podcast that work, works well for it. I mean, I, I don't know, uh, Wayne, how many how many episodes of this show are so Mav's writing on this for his dissertation yeah. this week. So that's what we're going to talk about because yeah. Yeah. because I don't have time to do any other research. <laughs> but thanks, Douglas. This has been great. Um, I, this has been um, uh, anything you want to plug. I, I know you have a podcast of your own. And, and again, the book, let people know where to get that stuff, to, stuff to plug. I will plug all of the Marvels, my book about reading all 27,000 Marvel superhero comic books. Uh, the subtitle is A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told. Uh, that subtitle is kind of a nod to Carl Wilson's amazing book about Celine Dion's Let's Talk About Love, which is subtitled <laughs> A Journey to the End of Taste, which itself is a Louis Ferdinand Celine joke. Uh, so it's, it's uh, that, that is a nested joke right there. But, uh, uh, <laughs> that Carl Wilson book, by the way, amazing book. But uh, I will plug the book, and I will also plug my podcast, which I hope will be returning by the time this airs or shortly thereafter, which is the Voice of Latveria, voiceoflatveria.com. It is kind of a podcast about Doctor Doom and also kind of a Cold War era shortwave radio propaganda news broadcast from Latveria, the small fictional Eastern European country that Doctor Doom rules. So that's my plugs. I and again, I I mean, I, I'll talk to you off air, but I want to be on this show more than anything in my life right now. So, <laughs> <laughs> I love guesting a podcast and like, yeah. more than anything else. This is like, um, but yeah, both both of those will be linked to the show. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. And you know, for, you know, for the regular listeners, Monica, what about you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram or on Twitter at Monica Marvelous on Instagram. That's L O U S. And on Twitter, that's L O U X Marvelous, just like Marvel comics. I do want to point out, I think last week or two weeks ago, I guess as, as this airs, um, I did accidentally tag the wrong Marvel Monica Marvelous on Twitter, but sorry, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's gonna happen sometimes. So, so, yeah, I mean, she's gonna people are gonna be writing her about the IATSE strike. So sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> but it gets it gets confusing. Um Wayne, what about you? Uh I, nothing new. At some point uh I have a review of all the Marvels uh that will be appearing in the, the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. I don't know the publication date of it. Uh, it may or may not be linked on the show notes the day this drops because it might not have appeared yet. Uh, I, I think it will probably appear the same same day the book releases, which will be the next day. But uh, we can go back and, and add it. And, yeah, I'll go back and add it. You know, at some point, maybe. I mean, people don't necessarily listen to the podcast the day they come out. Right, yeah, right. If you're listening two years from now, it's probably linked. It's, it's probably, yeah, it's probably linked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, that, that'll be the most recent thing. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, all of the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places, at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can find out what we're talking about next week. I have no idea what that is. Um, I think maybe vampires? That might be two weeks ago. Witches? I don't know. Log in. Read our blog. Find out what we're going to be talking about. It's October. Something scary. Something scary. It's like Halloween's coming. It's going to be... Oh, oh wow Halloween is oh there's so much to talk about Halloween's coming we'll be talking about something Halloweeny you can give us thoughts on the upcoming episodes so that we can address them you can give us um, 
feedback on our current episodes, which we always appreciate. You can, you know, give us suggestions about what you want to hear us talk about. Cause you know, coming up with show ideas is hard. We've been doing this for like four years. This is hard work. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and if you enjoy the show, we certainly hope you do. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or the house you get podcasts from and do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review. Leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple podcasts. Um, that gooses the algorithm and makes the show more popular. And you know, makes me feel good. I read all this stuff. You know, it's very lonely being a podcast <laughs> editor and, you know, and an adjunct professor at like, you know, 87 different schools, as Wayne just pointed out. Like, I have a lot of time to travel. I, I, I just need things to do with my life and, and to feel good about myself. So what I'd like you to do is, you know, you know, subscribe to Vox Popcast and then write five stars. Um, give Mav a job. That's what I want. <laughs> Mav needs a tenure track position. Uh, so do Hannah and Katya, who aren't, who aren't even on this episode, but, you know, they like to. And, and also, you know, help Monica get into grad school. I don't know why five-star reviews will do that, but I'm just going to assume it will. <laughs> People will be impressed. You'll say, Monica will say, I'm, I'm host of a five-star review podcast. And, you know help <laughs> we'll be like, welcome <laughs> that's, that's right that's how that works but i would like to thank maximilian of thought for music for epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out i once again like to thank douglas for joining us i'd like to thank you at home for listening and we'll see you next time bye, bye.